Thanks for listening to the Burning Bush Podcast. Today we are talking about the Universal Church as part five of our series titled Our Beliefs. And we believe in the spiritual unity of believers in Christ and that all believers are members of the Universal Church. The Church is representative of the body of Christ of which He is the head. Now, before we dive into this topic today, let's define a term, the word church. So the word church in the New Testament never refers to a building or a place, but rather we see it only being used as a reference to people. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that God, having therefore raised Christ from the dead, put all things under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is in his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the people that look to Christ as their life and final authority in life. Yet, since these early days of the church, we've seen heretical views threatening Christian faith as a whole. And so many Protestants have recited or read a creed at some point in their life. And if you've listened to any episode of this podcast, you hear one every time at the very beginning. So, let's look at a brief history of why these creeds exist. So from the earliest point in the history in the church, we've not only proclaimed the truth of scripture, but we've also dealt with and continue to deal with radical departures from what is biblically true. And further, we've seen from the very beginning and continuing till this day, the appearance of multiple heresies that have threatened the church as a whole. So one of the earliest creeds is extremely simple, and chances are you say it each and every day when you pray, or at least each Sunday at church, and that is this, Jesus is Lord. This creed, although incredibly simple, came from an incredibly important time in both church history and the Christian faith. In the days of the early church, there was a loyalty oath that was imposed on all citizens of the Roman Empire. And this meant that Christians were required to say, Kaiser Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. And obviously this was an issue. Even though the early Christian church was cooperative and willing to render civil obedience as much as possible, this phrase crossed the line. So in response, Christians would say, Jesus Hokurios, or Jesus is Lord. So this brings us to discussing some of the great creeds of church history, those like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. These two creeds were written as a direct response to serious heretical views that were arising and threatening Christian faith. It's important to understand that these creeds were never seen as a substitute for scripture or as having any authority over scripture. What they did was provide a summary of what Christians believe. So now let's go over the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all words, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory, to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord of giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
Now, you may have said that creed at some point in your life, as many Protestants have either read or heard or recited this creed. And you may also be wondering why we profess a belief in the Holy Catholic Church. You may be wondering if this is an allegiance to the Pope, and if the Protestant churches aren't in communion with the Roman Catholic Church, why would it affirm this part of the creed? Well, the answer is simple. The Holy Catholic Church and Roman Catholic Church are not the same. The term in the Nicene Creed, Catholic, simply means universal. So therefore, when we say that we believe in one holy Catholic Church, we're only affirming the Church is made up of people from all kinds of backgrounds. This means that even two Christians of different nationalities, when verbal communication is impossible, have an intimate fellowship with one another because both are united to Jesus, and this enables all believers to be in union with all other believers on earth and in heaven. So simply put, anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus alone for their salvation is part of the universal church. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. So this then raises the question among many believers, if there is a creed and understanding of one universal church, why are there so many different denominations? And we very commonly hear skeptics both inside and outside of the church asking questions like, why isn't there one church? There's one Bible, and if it's true, why do so many churches believe different things and split apart? Well, it's time for us Christians to get honest with ourselves. We have moments of doubt, and honestly, we've wondered similar things. Why isn't there just one unified church? Why isn't there a church characterized by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5? And Charles Spurgeon even felt this same tension and wanted to make sense of all the variety of denominations surrounding his church in the mid-1800s. He believed that denominational division within the church sprung up because different groups of Christians developed firm convictions. And these divisions didn't arise because these groups despised or hated one another, but Spurgeon argues that it was out of a desire to honor Paul's commandment in 1 Corinthians 14.40 that says, All things should be done decently and in order. Therefore, he argued that it is better to divide into orderly churches than for Christians to destroy one another on the account of particular traditions, such as taking communion every week, or not ever drinking alcohol, or contemporary versus liturgical worship, things like that. So let's talk about the current state of the universal church. So as a visible entity, the church isn't presently united like we discussed. We have many different denominations, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and a litany of others. The truth of the matter is this, even though there are many different denominations, all believers claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and there is but one church of which he is the head. And Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon given on December 13, 1857, at the Music Hall in the Royal Surrey Gardens, for out of the church there is no salvation. But mark what the church is. It is not the Episcopalian, Baptist, or Presbyterian. The church is a company of men who have received the Spirit. And this brings us to this thought. As believers who are spiritually unified through our belief in Christ, what does this unification mean? So let's talk about church unity in the United and Universal Church. When we are speaking about the Universal Church, we're speaking primarily of the invisible unity that all believers of Jesus share. Everyone who knows Christ as a Savior is united to everyone else who knows Christ as a Savior. This is because all of us are united to Christ, and He has only one body, as Ephesians 4, 4-6 indicates. And this disunity within the universal church, it is unfortunate and regrettable, because we as Christians all need to work to visibly unify the church insofar as it is possible without compromising the gospel. 
but unfortunately we see Christians working to unify the church at the expense of the truth and message of the gospel. So this means that we need to make some important distinctions before moving forward. If we are to have unity at the expense of the truth, then we will have a foundationless unity. However, this does not mean that we should stop pursuing visible unity. We know that one day the church will be visibly unified in glory. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 verses 20 through 21 that we will be one and the Father always answers the prayers of his Son. That's from Ligonier Ministries. So I want to revisit this term of Catholic and let's talk about true Catholicity. And as we discussed earlier in this podcast, and as we discussed earlier in this podcast, the Catholic Church that is referenced throughout the Bible does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. The original Greek word used in scripture was the adjective katholikos, which translates to universal, as it came from the phrase katholu, which means on the whole, according to the whole, or in general, and it was combined with the Greek words kata, meaning about, and ilos, meaning whole. Let's look at this from a logical perspective. If God provided only one church in his mission to redeem the world, which he did, we see that in John 3.16 and Ephesians 4.4-6, that church is therefore universal. And this means that there are no competing bodies through which anyone could ever access the means to acquire grace and salvation except through Christ. In the history of the church, we see reformers emphasizing the Catholicity of the true church. And they did this in the face of the criticism that they themselves were anti-Catholic. These early Protestants had broken away from the papacy and formed groups that were not unified together. We then see the Roman Catholic Church misunderstanding basic scripture entirely as they asserted that the church only consisted of those who were in association and communion with the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy in Rome. And if you don't see the irony here, let's put this bluntly. By claiming that churches have to be in communion with the papacy in Rome, they are robbing the church of its universality. And they are doing this by placing favor of practices and doctrines developed by man in one stream of the Western Church. The Universal Church is not governed by one bishop or the Pope, but by those from all tribes and tongues who hold fast to the Biblical Gospel. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this concludes our episode on the Universal Church. Thank you for listening, and for a full transcript and list of our sources and Bible verses that we use to write this, please visit our website, burningbush.blog. Again, that's B-U-R-N-I-N-G-B-U-S-H dot B-L-O-G. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time as we discuss the Great Commission.